You can't be neutral on the moving train. I told y'all before. You can't believe everything that your teacher tell you. Who was your teacher? Your teacher just learned what they was taught. How do you know what they was taught was correct? Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral, a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can also check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. At that website, you'll also find a link to send me a message, and you'll find some links to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast and all my podcasts free and independent. First up is a piece written by Matthew Cunningham Cook, and this is published at jacobin.com. I was going to sit down and finish up some longer writing projects this weekend, but then the shooting in Buffalo happened, where it appears that a white supremacist 18-year-old drove 200 miles to kill black people in one of the most African-American neighborhoods in New York State. It's a horrifying tragedy, immediately hearkening back to the 2015 mass murder at Reverend Clementa Pickney's church in Charleston, South Carolina. Law enforcement officials say that the murderer had researched the mass murder of 51 Muslims in Christchurch, New Zealand in 2018. As a black person, I have the biggest news-generated pit in my stomach since George Floyd's murder. It feels as if American society is becoming unmoored from its foundations, and we don't have any coordinated approach. As people on the left, as workers, and as black people, and as people of color, for how to respond. The central problem with the social media age is its never-ending cacophony. Silence and contemplation are never allowed. As a result, responses to mass murder almost immediately begin to conform to folks' prior views on gun regulation or on white supremacy, typically, but also a broader set of assumptions about how society is and should be organized. When tensions are so high, honest conversations are difficult. And yet those conversations must happen, and we cannot honestly talk about racist mass murder without talking about capital and the profit system. We are not being honest about violence if we ignore the profit motive in weapons manufacturing. We are not being honest about racism if we ignore the profit motive in the racism that makes non-rich white people identify their problems as black people instead of the small handful of capitalists who control the global economy. We are not being honest about the context of violence if we ignore economic inequality. We are not being honest about media-fueled hate if we ignore the profit motive in news and social media companies that make money off of outrage. In short, we are not being honest about what's happening if we ignore how hypercapitalism brought us to this moment. As Martin Luther King Jr. said to his staff in 1966, Something is wrong with capitalism. There must be a better distribution of wealth, and maybe America must move towards a democratic socialism. 
By making explicit the connection between racism and capitalism, we honor the legacy of black thinkers who have explored this question. From Langston Hughes, James Baldwin, Asada Shakur, June Jordan, Lorraine Hansberry, W.E.B. Dubois, Paul Robeson, Bell Hooks, and Claudia Jones, to Robin D.G. Kelly and Kianga Yamada-Taylor today. Papering over these links between racial and economic inequality, then, is also papering over black American intellectual history. By skirting around the solution to the problems that all of us in the global 99% face, we're not honestly diagnosing the disease and taking steps to address it in the body politic. Particularly in the United States, where the socialist branch of the labor movement that brought us the eight-hour workday, the weekend, and Social Security was crushed in the McCarthy era and never recovered, we must start explaining the virtues of worker control over production and worker power in politics and how it addresses the problems we face. The rich make every economic decision in society while treating workers as subhuman. Call it democracy call, or call it democratic socialism, but there must be a better distribution of wealth within this country for all God's children, King said. The 1% like Rupert Murdoch, the misanthropic owner of Fox News and TV host Tucker Carlson, uses racism to get a portion of the white 99% to act against their own economic interests. We need to reduce the 1%'s power if we are going to successfully fight racism. To do that, we must also acknowledge painful truths beyond merely the Republican Party's open embrace of fascism. We must also acknowledge the Democratic Party's complementary role, creating fertile ground for that fascism. As shown in Meltdown, Democratic's Wall Street fealty under President Obama in 2009 and 2010, via the foreclosure crisis, bonuses to build out Wall Street executives, and keeping the big banks intact, created ground for the growth of the extreme right, handing far-right Republicans a midterm election victory in 2010 that thrust white nationalist Steve King into the House majority. In 2016, then, Obama insisted on campaigning for a hated trade agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Hillary Clinton failed to dis distance herself from as Donald Trump made opposition to the agreement a centerpiece of his campaign. Senate Democrats' 2013 failure, thanks to conservative Democrats, including Joe Biden allies Chris Coons and Bob Casey, to confirm Obama nominee Debo Adegbiel to lead the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division, left the agency without a Senate-confirmed head to lead a push on voting and civil rights for the rest of Obama's presidency. Trump's easily preventable 2016 victory is inseparable from the growth of the extreme right in America. A man who launched his presidential campaign by calling Mexicans rapists and demanding a Muslim ban, before praising an apocryphal story about genocidal General John Pershing, calling violent Nazi protesters very fine people, and retweeting white nationalist Twitter accounts as president is sure to massively embolden extreme white nationalists, and that's exactly what has happened. Joe Biden is not some innocent bystander the author of the racist 1994 crime bill, who made common cause with segregationists, won his party's presidential nomination against a civil rights protester. 
As recently as 2015, Biden bragged about his relationship with white nationalist Senator Jesse Helms, who was a fierce defender of vicious white minority rule in Rhodesia, now Zambia and Zimbabwe. Sending two aides to a conference in 1979 to urge Rhodesian Prime Minister Ian Smith to stiffen his spine against the guerrilla movement leading the independence struggle. Dylan Roof, who killed nine people in a black church in South Carolina in 2015, titled his blog, The Last Rhodesian. Lest you think Biden's behavior is ancient history, the president earlier this month pined for the old days when he and his party got along with virulent racists. Quote, We always used to fight like hell, and even back in the old days, when we had real segregationists like Eastland and Thurmond and all those guys. But at least we'd end up eating lunch together, Biden said. For reference, Senator James Eastland of Mississippi often spoke of black people as, quote, an inferior race, according to his obituary in the New York Times. Senator Strom Thurmond of South Carolina ran as an independent third-party candidate in 1948 on an unabashedly pro-segregation platform and led the longest filibuster in history against the Civil Rights Act of 1957. Biden's history of downplaying the dangers of white nationalism in favor of an elite collegiality might explain why his administration has been so reticent to take action on policies that would take some of the wind out of the sails of the rising extreme right, frothing at critical race theory and great replacement delirium. As Andre Perry at the Brookings Institution wrote last year, Biden canceling all student loan debt would go a long way towards addressing the racial wealth gap and economic inequality. It has been 16 months since Biden took office, and there's still no action. Biden won't even release an unredacted version of the legal memo on his authority to cancel student debt. And, of course, since this piece was written, Biden did move forward his limited forgiveness of student debt, with many holders of student debt um, having $10,000 forgiven and select holders of student debt having $20,000 forgiven. Both of which, in my opinion, fall short of what was needed and, as this author stated, full cancellation of student debt. It's a time-proven axiom that rising economic inequality creates political openings for the extreme right. This is apparent in the rise of Trump, Marine Le Pen, and far-right parties in Spain, Germany, Austria, and Hungary. Reflecting this reality, the polling organization Data for Progress noted at the beginning of April that 56% of young voters from ages 18 to 35 in the battleground states of Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, quote, say they would be more likely to vote should all student loan debt be canceled. Extremist Republican candidates are set to be nominated in all of those states. As just one example, all of the top Republicans in Arizona have embraced great replacement, language echoed by the Buffalo shooter, with Arizona Attorney General Mark Baranovich stating recently that migration is the constitutional definition of an invasion. Defeating them should be a high priority, given Biden's abysmal current approval ratings that only seems possible if Biden cancels student debt. 
Yet again, economic inequality and the extreme right are inseparably intertwined. We can't solve one without the other. And yet there is still inaction. That intransigence is reflected throughout Biden's party. Take New York Governor Kathy Hochul, who is from Buffalo. On Sunday at a church service in the city, she said, Lord, forgive the anger in my heart, but channel that into my passion to continue to fight to protect people, get the guns off the streets, and silence the voices of hatred and racism and white supremacy all over the Internet. Meanwhile, Hochul has failed to endorse good cause eviction legislation, which would disproportionately help black and brown households that are facing eviction. And both Hochul and Biden are failing to lift a finger to help the Amazon labor union, the black-led movement that nonetheless built majority support for the union from workers of all races, the most effective antidote to white nationalism. The generous tax breaks for Amazon in New York are still in place, despite the retail giant's alleged labor law violations. Biden just gave Amazon a $10 billion contract after pledging to deny contracts to companies that fail to remain neutral in union elections. Hope should still spring eternal. I often reflect on the not-so-prophetic words of white abolitionist Wendell Phillips around 1856. Quote, The government has fallen into the hands of the slave power completely. So far as national politics are concerned, we are beaten. There's no hope, he wrote. We shall have Cuba in a year or two, Mexico in five. The future seems to unfold a vast slave empire united with Brazil. I hope I may be a false prophet, but the sky never was so dark. Less than ten years later, America's second and much further-reaching revolution in emancipation the general strike of people formally in coerced bondage and reconstruction was in place. Slave power crushed, and hundreds of black people and their allies were elected on land reform and anti-Wall Street platforms. Next up is a piece published at the Boston Globe at bostonglobe.com, written by Kelly Carter Jackson. Abraham Lincoln did not free the enslaved. The enslaved freed themselves. For decades, historians have argued for the agency of black Americans in securing their own liberation during the Civil War. But time and time again, Lincoln is touted by his most well-known monikers, the great emancipator or savior of the Union. His entire presidential legacy is often summarized in an easy one-liner. Lincoln freed the slaves. Lincoln is perhaps one of the few presidents who require constant revisiting. This Juneteenth, I'm honored to revisit Lincoln's personal and political legacy, particularly focusing on how he faced the deadliest and most consequential war in U.S. history. Equally important, it emphasizes the role of black leaders, abolitionists, and political activists who convinced Lincoln to transform the nation. Their voices and contributions to emancipation and equality have resonance today. I am always hopeful for an era of nuance, a moment in which Americans can hold the complexities of people in full view. Lincoln remains complicated and inconsistent. He was for restoring the Union at all costs, even if that meant preserving the institution of slavery. In his first inaugural address, 
he spoke in support of the Fugitive Slave Law, a provision that allowed slaveholders to retrieve their human property. Lincoln proposed compensation for slaveholders and deportation or colonization for African Americans. While he was anti-slavery, he was not an abolitionist, and he did not believe in the equality of the races. Lincoln is flawed, but he was also willing to reflect, pivot, and listen. I appreciate Lincoln the most for his willingness to understand and eventually act upon the encouragement of black leaders and their white allies to extend freedom, citizenship, and voting rights to African Americans. History reveals that people, particularly those with the least access to power, politically or economically, can and should hold elected officials accountable. In America, slavery died a painful death on the ground. During the Civil War, enslaved people did not wait for white liberators. They saw many of their slaveholders leave to fight, and so they left for freedom. Enslaved people by the hundreds of thousands ran away to Union lines and northern cities to escape their bondage. Their massive migration forced the nation to place an end of slavery on the national political agenda. We have looked for abolition in all the wrong places. Freedom did not come from the White House or Congress. Black people were not given freedom. They forced freedom to become a national mandate. The Emancipation Proclamation freed the enslaved in rebelling states, but we should remember that Louisiana, Maryland, Missouri, Tennessee, and West Virginia also decreed abolition on their own. Because the enslaved were escaping from bondage, the nation had no choice. While we can credit Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation formally, it was abolitionist and national leader Frederick Douglass who convinced Lincoln to use freedom as a weapon. Douglass pushed Lincoln to make abolition the heart and cause of the war. He persuaded Lincoln to allow black men to fight and serve in the military and to compensate them equally. Unbeknownst to many, Douglass is the real hero behind much of Lincoln's success. Douglas was, as David Blight suggests, America's prophet of freedom. He not only called out American hypocrisy, but also, along with women, clearly saw the path forward. The 13th Amendment, which originated with the Women's National Loyal League, led by Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, was akin to a coroner's report. It marked slavery's official time of death. When the Civil War finally ended, Lincoln admitted, I claim not to have controlled events, but confess plainly that events have controlled me. In the end, Lincoln's real issue was not reuniting the Confederacy with America, nor was it even freeing enslaved people. It was getting white Americans, himself included, to relinquish their allegiance to white supremacy. This question remains for every president elected to office. What to do with white people? Make no mistake, white supremacy is a peculiar pathology. Perhaps Toni Morrison summed it up best when she asked, What are you without racism? Are you any good? Are you still strong? Are you still smart? Do you still like yourself? I mean, these are the questions. The myth of whiteness as supreme is such a fully formed identity in America that neither the North nor the South has been able to renounce their commitment to racial domination. Or put another way, if everyone were to have equal access to the ballot, would white people still be powerful? 
If integration were instituted equitably, with all deliberate speed, would America still be America? Today's battles over elections and critical race theory in the classroom are a reflection of America's racial conundrum. And as Morrison warned, if you can only be tall because somebody is on their knees, then you have a serious problem. And my feeling is white people have a very, very serious problem, and they should start thinking about what they can do about it. Take me out of it. Black leadership had been pushing for abolition, citizenship, and suffrage all throughout the antebellum period. University of Maryland professor Christopher James Bonner has written about this deeply and eloquently in his award-winning book, Remaking the Republic, Black Politics and the Creation of American Citizenship. Bonner argues point for point the enormous influence black people had in defining, quote, who belonged in the nation and the terms of that belonging. When it came to the Civil War, black people again did much of the work. They ran away from the plantation to escape to Union lines and enlisted in the military to fight alongside the Union and against the slaveholding South. More than 250,000 black soldiers turned the tide of the war into a victory. Lincoln said as much himself. Moreover, during Lincoln's Reconstruction, something incredible happened. Black Americans went from being enslaved to being elected officials. Black Americans built schools, public health departments, roads and infrastructure, and charitable institutions for the elderly and mentally ill. They plotted land, created banks, and managed to invest money in their communities. The issue is not black people's capacity to survive and succeed. It is white people's ability to accept black humanity and forfeit the myth of their supremacy. Context and scope are everything. Where historians or textbooks start, a story is political. What is included and what is forgotten, what is centered and what is marginalized, matters a great deal. One cannot teach Lincoln without Douglas. One cannot teach the Civil War without slavery. One cannot talk about freedom without talking about the grip of bondage. The history of America is often about social and political change, followed by backlash. That was certainly true in Lincoln's era and the decades that followed. The racial reckoning of 2020 is being eclipsed by an effort to censor educators and ban books, and by a frantic movement to suppress the history of slavery and racism in America. We can turn on the lights, look under the beds, and open the closet doors, but the real boogeyman is not critical race theory. It's white supremacy. And it is this tremendous resiliency of white supremacy uh, in the United States um, resilient because it is built into all of our institutions and all of those institutions work to maintain the power for the people who benefit from that white supremacy. So it makes it very, very difficult to point out and more difficult to actually change. So even when we have millions of people in the streets and we have what feels like a sea change, what feels like a turning point, what feels like in the media a reckoning 
it it stops it is resisted uh to a, a significant degree and then where it's not resisted where some things move forward where history where education um starts to open up a little bit where the conversation starts to open up a little bit then we have this reaction because those people in power help use the propaganda systems that we have which are largely our education system and our media to foment distrust between the people between the people who get some benefit out of the white supremacy that's built into all of our systems the people who have some privilege and i'm not talking about the most privileged people the people that really wield the power i'm talking about the people who have marginal amounts of privilege the the working poor the white middle class and working class that are experience a lot of harm from our systems experience a lot of harm from capitalism um, don't uh, benefit, don't don't achieve what might seem like success um, based on how our economic system measures success, but do get benefits uh, because of white supremacy and because of their white skin. The police state and the legal system do not oppress um, white Americans to the extent that they oppress non-white Americans. So there's this division, there's this privilege that white supremacy provides that helps facilitate the ability for the people with the power to use the propaganda systems to continue to divide us, continue to tell the white people in our society that don't have the power that aren't that aren't in control of things that you are going to lose if other folks quote unquote the other gain rights gain power gain economic standing that is going to harm you when you're being harmed already so these reactions are common throughout our history and this reaction that is happening right now is more of the same and the pew research center just released a number of stories based on a survey they conducted in october 2021 about a year and a half after the murder of george floyd and the activism and uprising that came uh up in the united states after it um surveyed black Americans to find out what they felt on a large number of issues. Here's a little bit of what that survey contained, but there's uh, pages and pages of results on pewresearch.org. This particular piece covering some of what's in that survey is written by Kiana Cox and Khadijah Edwards. During the national reckoning sparked by George Floyd's murder in 2020, a significant share of black Americans expected the increased focus on issues of racial inequality to lead to changes that would improve the lives of black people. Roughly a year and a half later, nearly two-thirds, 
64% of all black adults, including those who are multiracial or Hispanic, say the increased attention did not lead to such changes. And few, only 13%, expect black people will achieve equality in the United States, according to the October 2021 survey. Instead, black adults cite racism as a top issue for black people living in the U.S., 82%. And most say racial discrimination, 68%, is the main reason why many black people can't get ahead these days. Yet while the overwhelming majority, 79% of black adults, say they have personally experienced discrimination because of their race or ethnicity, they are also more likely to say racism in our laws is a bigger problem than to cite racism by individual people, 52% versus 43%. More than a year after national demonstrations following the murder of George Floyd and the subsequent racial reckoning, 64% of black Americans say the increased focus on issues of race and racial inequality in our country has not led to changes that are improving the lives of black people. These findings vary little with majorities of black adults across demographic subgroups holding this view. Even so, some subgroups are more likely than others to say such changes have not occurred. Roughly 7 in 10 black adults who identify with or lean towards a Republican Party, 71%, say the increased focus on race and racial inequality has not led to changes that are improving the lives of black people compared with 63% of black Democrats and Democratic leaners who say the same. Meanwhile, there is little variation across the ideological spectrum, with nearly two-thirds of black adults who describe their political views as liberal, 63%, moderate, 64%, and conservative, 67%, all saying this. Similar shares of black men, 62%, and black women, 66%, say the increased focus on racial inequality has not led to changes. Likewise, there are no significant differences by educational attainment or income levels, with majorities of black adults across education groups and income tiers all agreeing that the increased focus on race has not led to any changes. When it comes to ethnicity, non-Hispanic black adults, 65%, are slightly more likely than black Hispanic adults, 51%, to say the increased attention has not improved the lives of black people, while black multiracial adults are about as likely as both groups to say this, 56%. Black adults who say being black is extremely or very important to them, 66%, are not much more likely than those for whom being black is less important, 58%, to say this. There are no significant differences on this measure by age with majorities of black adults across age groups saying that the racial reckoning has not led to changes. Black adults born in the United States, 65%, are not much more likely than those born abroad, 55%, to say changes have not occurred despite the national reckoning on race. Only a small minority of black adults, 13%, say achieving equality for black people in the U.S. is extremely or very likely. Instead, nearly 4 in 10 say equality is somewhat likely, 38%, while 44% say equality is only a little or not at all likely. 
These findings are consistent across most demographic subgroups of black Americans, though there is some notable variation. A larger share of black Democrats, 45%, than black Republicans, 39%, say equality for black people in the U.S. is only a little or not at all likely. Among both groups, few say it is extremely or very likely equality for black people will be achieved, 13% and 16%, respectively. The new survey asked black adults to rate how much of a problem each of the following issues are for black people living in the U.S. today. Racism, efforts to limit voting, economic inequality, quality of K-12 schools, police brutality, and the affordability of health care. While the majority of black adults say all of these issues are extremely or very big problems, racism and police brutality rank highest. About 6 in 10 black adults say racism, 63%, and police brutality, 60%, are extremely big problems for black people living in the country today. While assessments vary, majorities across many of the subgroups rate both as extremely big problems. Smaller shares of black adults see economic inequality, 54%, affordability of health care, 47%, efforts to limit voting, 46%, and quality of K-12 schools, 40%, as extremely big problems for black people in the U.S. today. All of these numbers are still quite high, even though they do range from 40% to 54 Nearly 8 in 10 black adults, 79%, say they have personally experienced discrimination or been treated unfairly, either regularly or from time to time, because of their race or ethnicity. These findings vary little, with majorities of black adults across all demographic subgroups saying this. There are no significant differences by partisanship on this measure, with similar shares of black Republicans and black Democrats saying they have personally experienced discrimination or been treated unfairly. Likewise, there's little variation across the ideological spectrum, with similar shares of liberals, moderates, and conservatives saying the same. While significant majorities of black adults across demographic subgroups say they have personally experienced discrimination or been treated unfairly because of their race or ethnicity, fewer than half, only 48% of U.S. adults overall, say the same. Although the majority of black adults say they have personally experienced discrimination or been treated unfairly because of their race or ethnicity, black adults are still more likely to say racism in our laws is a bigger problem, 52%, than racism by individual people. And these are just a few of the findings, one story among what is like eight or nine pages of stories uh, coming out of this particular survey. Once again, that is at pewresearch.org. This piece is published at npr.org and is written by Carrie Johnson. Eric Alvarez remembered what it felt like to hear his fiance was coming home from prison. Overwhelming relief. Alvarez has heart trouble and he struggled to take care of his four kids and his fiance's daughter through their long separation. When Eva Cardoza returned from the Federal Correctional Institution in Danbury, Connecticut, she shouldered a lot of burdens. Quote, 
She was doing everything at home. She was cooking, cleaning, taking care of the kids, helping them with homework, Alvarez said. More than 11,000 people like Cordoza have been released from federal prison in the last couple of years to ride out the pandemic at home, often with their families and loved ones. But that situation can be precarious. In June 2021, Alvarez and Cardoza took a 90-minute cab ride to the Bronx so she could meet with staffers in charge of her supervision. Cardoza, who had tested positive for marijuana, never came out of the building. Alvarez ended up forking out $433 to cover the hours the taxi meter ran as he waited in vain. Cardoza's return to prison turned the family upside down. She has now been back in Danbury for 14 months. Alvarez said she never got the chance to explain herself or challenge that single positive drug test. That's just mind-boggling to me, Alvarez said. Where is the judicial system? Where is the fairness? Where is the 50-50? I don't see it. Less than 0.2% of the people released committed new crimes while they were out. This week, the Bureau of Prisons told NPR that 442 people who were released during the pandemic have now returned to prison. Only 17 people out of more than 11,000 who were released committed new crimes, mostly drug-related ones, while they were out. More than half, some 230 people, including Eva Cardoza, got sent back for alleged alcohol or drug use. Other cases involved technical violations. Sakira Cook of the racial justice group Color of Change explained what that means. It could be as simple as failing to answer the phone when your probation officer calls. It could be as simple as the ankle monitor giving an incorrect signal about your location, Cook said. Cook has personal experience with that last problem. A relative recently left federal prison on home confinement only to get an ankle monitor that didn't work. Fortunately, she said, the probation officer understood the situation. Kevin Ring advocates for people in prison and their families at the group FAMM, formerly known as Families Against Mandatory Minimums. In a normal circumstance, somebody who violates the terms of their home confinement is sent back to the halfway house or to prison. But the stakes are much lower, Ring said. They're only going back for a month or two. But some of the people released from prison under the bipartisan pandemic legislation called the CARES Act have years remaining on their prison terms. Is it really worth sending people back for years because they missed a phone call or they had alcohol in their urine? Ring asked. Most of the monitoring of people on home confinement is being done by private contractors, said Quinnipiac University School of Law professor Sarah Russell. There can be a lot of room for miscommunications and misunderstandings, Russell said. Russell said that all the more that's all the more reason to ensure due process rights for people at risk of being sent back, the opportunity to see the evidence against them, and to have a hearing before a neutral arbiter. Last week, one of Russell's clients won those rights in court. The decision by Judge Omar Williams is the first in the nation to hold that the current process for returning people to federal prison after home confinement is unconstitutional. Russell said her other clients, moms with young children, are still nervous about having to leave their lives behind unexpectedly. 
My real hope is that this gets addressed at the national level through the Bureau of Prisons and through the Department of Justice, Russell said. They have a real opportunity to set clear procedures and criteria. More lawsuits from people returned to prison are underway. The Bureau of Prisons said it can't talk about that pending litigation, but it is considering a new federal rule to make the process more clear. For Eric Alvarez, that can't come too soon. He's been diagnosed with colon cancer, the same disease that took his uncle years ago. Quote, And my heart is not up to par to take this kind of abuse, and now I'm going through it on my own, he said. It's just I'm afraid that I'm going to die alone. Alvarez talks to his fiancée in prison on the phone or with video calls, but he said it's not the same as having her home. And that is a pretty remarkable statistic that of the 11,000 people who were released as part of the CARES legislation, only 17 of them committed new crimes, and most of those were drug-related crimes while they were out. But 442 people have been returned to prison, and many of those because of drug tests or other minor parole or release infractions. And sticking with stories about how a law enforcement target and over-police black and other people of color... Here's this piece of uh, something that was going on while the media was overloaded in the U.S. with stories about the FBI executing search warrants at Mar-a-Lago and recovering documents that Trump was uh, keeping there, had in his possession there at Mar-a-Lago, thus uh, teaching all of the people on the very far right that the FBI was not their friend. The FBI was doing what the FBI has historically always done elsewhere in the U.S. This piece is published at greenleft.org.au. Yes, this piece is published in Australian media uh, because this story was not well covered in the U.S. I'm sure there were some more marginalized uh, media that did cover this in the U.S., but uh, this particular piece I found at greenleft.org.au, written by Malik Maya. African People's Socialist Party, APSP leaders' homes and offices were violently raided by the United States Federal Bureau of Investigation, FBI, on July 29. FBI officers used flashbang grenades and drones in the early morning attacks which took place in St. Louis, Missouri, in St. Petersburg, Florida. The Pan-Africanist Socialist Group has been a longtime advocate for reparations for slavery and a vocal critic of U.S. foreign policy. It was founded in 1972. The raids were authorized by a judge. The FBI alleges that the APSP is somehow connected with Russian businessman Alexander Viktorovich Ianov, indicted over using U.S.-based groups to spread Russian propaganda and meddling in U.S. elections. Ianov lives in Moscow. The APSP and other unidentified political groups accused of being Ianov's, quote, co-conspirators, along with Russian intelligence, 
had not been formally indicted at the time of this writing. APSP criticizes and denounces racist policies and promotes black community empowerment. It is a vocal critic of U.S. foreign policy towards Africa and countries not aligned with U.S. interests. Activities noted in the Ionov indictment include that APSP organized rallies to oppose the genocide of African people in the United States and made public statements denouncing U.S.-NATO involvement in the war in Ukraine while expressing political sympathy for Russia. The formal accusation is more than an attack on the APSP. It is an affront to the constitutional right of freedom of speech used by all opponents of the U.S. ruling class. The mainstream media has said little about this attack by the government on a black rights group. Most liberal groups have also been quiet about the raid because it was done by Democrat President Joe Biden's Justice Department. APSP chairperson Omali Yeshitela, who is 80 years of age, told Democracy Now! on August 10 that before the raid, he and his wife Ona had been sitting at the table discussing their schedule for the day. We heard this loud racket outside, this noise from loudspeakers demanding that the residents of this property should come out with our hands up and nothing in our hands. And as this was being said, loud flashbang grenades were exploding all around the house, and I was later to learn in the back stairwell of the house. Yeshitela asked Ona to let him leave the house first and to call people to let them know they were being raided. She tried but was unable to because they had jammed our phones. When I got to the bottom of the stairwell, these laser dots from automatic weapons were bouncing off my chest, and I heard these commands to move towards them, towards the light. As Yeshitela came down the stairs, he saw a large armored vehicle in front of the house. There were camouflage-clad troopers, FBI agents, and I don't know who else, with flak jackets and automatic weapons. My wife followed me down, and on her way down, a drone went past her head, going up the stairwell into the house. Officers handcuffed the couple as soon as they got outside. I'm asking them, why? What's going on? They said that they had a search warrant for my house. When Yeshitela asked to see the search warrant, he was told the officers didn't have it on them, but that it was somewhere in the vicinity, and they would get it. I said again, why are you here? Why are you attacking this house? They took Yeshitela's mobile phone and told him that the raid was connected with an indictment against a Russian national, and said that should Ianov ever come to the United States, he would be arrested. Somehow my name was involved in this indictment, and so that was the basis they gave for the arrest. I didn't know it at the time, but across town, one of our offices was being attacked. This was an office of the African People's Solidarity Committee. They used battering rams to go into that house, and upstairs there were two residents. These were white people, who were also handcuffed at gunpoint. The FBI's treatment of black nationalists, socialists, and activists stands in sharp contrast to how white nationalist supremacists are politely managed. Former President Donald Trump broke laws but remains unindicted, a clear double standard, or more accurately, one justice for black people and one for the rich and white nationalists. A case in point is when the FBI, with a warrant in hand, entered Trump's Florida mansion on August 8. No flashbang grenades or handcuffs were used. No physical threats were issued. 
Trump was not home but watched the search as it was captured on security cameras from his New York City property. Trump knew the raid was going to occur. He attacked the FBI and claimed, along with Republican officials, that it was the type of action used by third world dictators. He later claimed the FBI planted evidence against him. Trump refused to make the contents of the warrant public or say what was taken from his mansion. For decades, African Americans have suffered at the hands of the FBI and other police agencies. Black people are often shot and killed for little reason. Investigations and warrantless raids by the FBI and cops have always been violent. Pan-Africanist and nationalist leader Marcus Garvey was harassed and finally deported to Jamaica in the 1920s. In the 1960s, black leaders of civil rights and black militant groups were followed, harassed, and murdered under a state counterintelligence program known as COINTELPRO, which lasted from 1956 to 1971. Malcolm X was targeted by the FBI and assassinated in 1965. Civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated in 1968 while supporting striking black sanitation workers in Memphis, Tennessee. Radical black power group the Black Panthers were infiltrated by the FBI and agent provocateurs. One of its most prominent local leaders in Chicago, Fred Hampton, was murdered as he slept. Black emergency medical technician Bionna Taylor died the same way in 2020 when police kicked down her apartment door and shot her. The APSP sees itself as following these earlier black leaders and organizers and standing up for today's victims of police violence. Since the raid, it has received solidarity from the black media, black leftists and organizations that don't necessarily agree with its ideology or program. The state always attacks black leaders and groups first before it hits more liberal and progressive groups. All of us must stand up for justice for the APSP. And next is a piece published at HuffPost.com. This is written by Bishop William J. Barber II. Standing before tens of thousands gathered on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C. on June 18, I was led to say these words. We come here from every corner of this land because there are unnecessarily 140 million poor and low-wealth people in this country. These numbers and the interlocking injustices that produce them are not just about debates between the right, left, and moderates. They represent a crisis of democracy and a shared failure to center poor and low-wealth people. But there is something else that is even more grotesque. The regressive policies which produce 140 million poor and low-wealth people are not benign. They are forms of policy murder. As a pastor, some of the hardest sermons I've had to preach were at funerals for people who were murdered. I funeralized people murdered by police, and I've eulogized young men who were shot dead in the street over little more than $20. But whenever you stand over the body of someone who has been murdered, you know they died an unnatural death. God did not simply call them home. Their life was cut short by someone who decided that they could play God and determine when a life should end. Murder is a sin not only because it takes another human's life, it is also an act of idolatry. While murder has a legal definition and can be prosecuted under state and federal laws, murderers are not the only people who commit the idolatrous act 
of deciding that someone else's life doesn't matter. In fact, far more people are killed every year by policy violence than by murderers in America. According to a study from Columbia University Mailman School of Public Health, nearly 700 people die every day in America from poverty. That's more than those who die from cancer or heart disease. But unlike these diseases, poverty is largely a political choice. We know that policies like the expanded child tax credit, which was passed as part of the American Rescue Plan, lifted 4 million U.S. children out of poverty in 2021 before it was discontinued in 2022 after the Senate failed to extend it. This legislation didn't simply make life a little easier for some Americans. It saved lives. When politicians use the power they have by virtue of being elected to kill legislation that saves lives, what should we call it? Policy violence may not meet the legal definition of murder, but that is more of a statement about the insufficiency of our laws than it is about the seriousness of the legislative negligence. If an individual doctor failed to do something in her power to save the life of a child, she would be charged with malpractice. If an engineer failed to take the necessary measures to ensure that a bridge doesn't collapse under the weight of traffic, he would be charged with criminal negligence. But when politicians refuse to renew life-saving policies, they are called moderates. Something is wrong with our language. This inability to even name the violence that is causing the most unnecessary death in our society suggests that we are held captive by something we do not understand. In ancient scripture, the prophets spoke out in the public square against such social captivity. They held up a mirror demanding that the nation must see itself and offered vivid images to describe the policy violence that was consuming people's lives. Your politicians are like ravenous wolves, Ezekiel prophesied in ancient Israel, comparing the policy violence of those who denied poor people their rights to flesh-eating wild animals. Ezekiel gave the people language to name an offense that the criminal code did not recognize, and he did not allow the people to think that politicians alone were responsible for the policy violence that plagued their society. Your priests are like the politicians, he declared whitewashing their sins. Policy violence never happens without the cultural wrappings of religious nationalism to justify legally sanctioned inhumanity. The worst evils in human history have been committed with the blessing of the court prophets under the fiery cross of the Ku Klux Klan rally and wrapped in the flag of the religious nationalists who believe they are justified in their cruelty because they are somehow defending God's good order. America, too, has had her prophets. After she walked away from the brutality of human bondage, Sojourner Truth heard the Spirit's call to travel across the United States and expose the nation's sin. Like Ezekiel, she relied on vivid imagery to awaken people from a collective stupor in which owning other human beings was not only seen as acceptable, but was also represented as God's will. The role of the prophet has always been to expose policy violence and history has often conspired with the prophets to make it easier for everyone to see and feel how decisions made by the powerful impact all of us. Over the past two years, poor and low-income people have been two to five times more likely 
to die from COVID. Together with the United Nations Sustainable Development Network, the Poor People's Campaign conducted a study earlier this year which found that these extreme disparities cannot simply be explained by vaccination status. They are related to the policy violence against poor and low-wealth people that is endemic in American public life. Recently, the National Academy of Sciences said that more than 330,000 lives could have been saved if we simply had a policy of universal health care for all people when the pandemic hit. This basic commitment, which was first proposed in the United States by a Republican more than a century ago, is not out of reach. Every other wealthy country in the world guarantees health care to its citizens, whether a conservative or liberal government is in power. That we do not is an exception which exposes America's policy violence. Whatever their stated reasons for doing so, our elected representatives choose to let hundreds of thousands of Americans die. Yet we do not have a name for this particular form of mass slaughter. Words make worlds, the philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein said, and the absence of words can likewise prevent us from seeing the world that some people live in. On June 18, tens of thousands of Americans from every state in the Union and from every race, creed, and culture marched together on Pennsylvania Avenue with Poor People's Campaign to demand that the nation see their reality. For more than five hours, they told stories of losing loved ones to a lack of health care and mass incarceration, losing housing because of low wages and gentrification, and losing communities to ecological devastation and displacement. Standing before Congress for all to see, they issued a collective indictment against America's policy violence. In doing so, poor and low-wealth people were able to see clearly that however powerful those in office may seem, there are actually far more of us who suffer from policy violence than there are people who support it. Even as the January 6th Committee in Congress continued to lay out the desperation of Trump's seven-step plan to overturn the 2020 election when he and others felt they were losing power, the Mass Poor People's and Low-Wage Workers' Assembly issued its own seven-step plan to build legitimate power between now and the midterms in November. When we find language to name policy violence and listen to the people who suffer from it, we not only see the world as it is, we can also see our capacity to change it. The greatest violence of all may be the lie that they tell us in the face of monstrous evil that we can do nothing, that this is just the way things are. When those who have suffered violence join hands and rise up together to insist that their voices be heard, it is a reminder that none of us have to accept policy violence as a given. We made the world we are living in, James Baldwin said, and we must make it over again. The work of all who oppose policy violence is the work of reconstructing American democracy. And finally, here's a piece written by Olayemi Olorin, published at olorinati.substack.com. How do we create change? A lesson in shifting social consciousness. If you're in the business of trying or just hoping to change the world around you, you undoubtedly find yourself wondering how. How do we create change? 
We know that those in power will only do what the people demand. So how do we get people to support dismantling the only institutions they know? The first time I heard of abolition, I was a junior in college preparing to write my thesis. It was titled, Colored Bodies Matter, The Relationship Between Our Bodies and Power, which I mentioned only to demonstrate that I wasn't someone who needed convincing that the criminal system was wrought with deliberate, systemic racial injustice. Yet still, when my thesis advisor, Dr. Kathleen Sullivan, first mentioned abolition, I remember recoiling at what sounded so outrageous to my ears. You mean like abolishing prisons? I asked with alarm. She gave me Angela Davis's Are Prisons Obsolete? to read. That was the beginning of something. I didn't become an abolitionist right then and there, nor could I tell you when I became one, how long it took, or what final piece of information pushed me over the edge. But I remember sitting down to read that book and hearing the proverbial glass shatter in my mind when it was brought to my attention that we didn't always have or rely on prisons. That, combined with the realization that there are other countries that do not invest in punitive prison systems and instead invest in genuinely care-based, community-based rehabilitative models, immediately shifted my world. Just learning that it was possible to have a society without prisons instantly diminished how radical the mere suggestion had seemed to me just prior to reading that. Up until that point, I never noticed that because I was born into a society with prisons, I thought they were as natural to the earth as dirt, water, and air, rather than man-made institutions that they are. If you want to change someone's mind about something, the first thing you need to understand, what I believe my professor understood when she referred me to Angela Davis instead of engaging my alarm or trying to beat me over the head with fruitless debate, is that nobody ever abandons their entire worldview the first time it's challenged. It doesn't matter how many facts, stats, case studies, compelling narratives, or undeniable evidence you have on your side. People simply do not rip the foundation out from under themselves at the first indication that there may be cracks. People believe what they're taught, and rarely on their own do they have occasion to question what was presented to them as fundamental truths. The sky is blue, grass is green, cops good, robbers bad, justice is served when someone goes to jail. Calling the legal system the criminal justice system is the first of many intentional ways we're quietly indoctrinated in plain sight. Just by calling it that, the system becomes synonymous with our understanding of justice. As a result, we not only lended our faith and credibility it didn't earn and doesn't deserve, it never even occurs to us that there are alternative and more productive ways of addressing harm. Justice comes to mean arrest, prosecution, incarceration, and punishment. It comes to mean legally legitimized vengeance, completely divorced from any possibility that wrongs could be made right in another way, or that the system itself had anything to do with producing or maintaining the injustice it pretends to be addressing and condemning. That foundation is what underpins so many people's commitment to the idea that this system can be reformed, no matter how many Khalif Browders or George Floyds they hear about. Most people are not abolitionists. Most haven't even been presented with the concept. Even most people who do recognize that horribly unjust and racist things happen in the criminal system 
are not intimately aware of the system or its mechanics and tend to give it the benefit of the doubt. They believe that those unjust racist happenings are far more insidious and sparse than they are. That's why even when you tell people that over 20 people have died in Rikers in the last year and that the same thing is happening at other pretrial detention centers all over the country, they still insist it's an accidental outcome that can be corrected by reform rather than the deliberate, known, and routine consequence of a system that's purpose is to maintain social, racial, and economic inequality, because how could the justice system be a vehicle for injustice? How could they easily digest that police, prosecutors, judges, legislators, the people they've been taught to hold in high esteem as champions of, quote, justice, are intentionally bringing about these horror stories? If you're approaching shifting social consciousness with the goal in mind that there's any particular information that once armed with, people will be forced in one debate, in one Twitter interaction, in one dinner argument to immediately denounce their entire worldview, things will feel hopeless because that's just not realistic. This is gradual work. We change our minds over time. We come to adopt radically new worldviews and schools of thought over time often without even realizing it. The more information we're confronted with, the more that's revealed to us to contradict our old ways of thinking over time begins to erode at the foundation until eventually something new grows in its place. We must make the idea of a world where we don't rely on police and prisons sound just as unalarming as our reality that we live in a country that has almost 2 million people locked behind bars unfortunately sounds to many of us. We do that by regularly exposing people to the idea. We must challenge what we've been taught to believe about the criminal system openly and often enough that questioning it becomes intuitive. We must present people with new information, new ideas, new ways of thinking, and resources, then allow them to absorb it, process, learn, and change at their own pace, on their own, share the information, and leave them to it. We must expect resistance, even anger, from people who feel like someone's trying to rip the foundation out from under them. Expect it, and continue to share the information and ideas anyway. We don't need to debate them, argue them down, or get entangled in their internal struggle with having their foundations challenged. So how do we get people to support dismantling the only institutions they know to create the change we want? By informing people they have other options, by planting seeds and watching them take root and grow. If you want to check out back episodes of You Can't Be Neutral, just go to youcan'tbeneutral.com you find all the back episodes there, as well as the links to make a donation or to send me a message. You can also follow me on Twitter at YCBNeutral. And now, this is Taina Asili with a moment of Zin. Thanks for listening.
Lives, targets of torture for the forebearers who play. 